We acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded, ancestral, and occupied traditional territory of the Anishinaabe Nation, the people of the three fires known as Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi Nations. And furthermore, we thank the Chippewa of Saugeen and the Chippewa of Nawash, now known as the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation, who are the traditional keepers of this land. In some parts of Canada, treaties were signed with First Nations that gave incoming settlers rights to much of the land, while in other areas, few or no treaties were signed. Unceded land was never given or legally signed away to Britain or Canada. It was stolen and continues to be occupied and governed by settlers today. As we live, work, surf and play, we say mahalo to the Métis, Inuit and Indigenous peoples of Turtle Island and from around the world who have stewarded these lands and sacred surf spots for thousands of years. We recognize their amazing resistance, resilience, and strength in the face of ongoing dispossession, colonial violence, and injustice. In particular, we wish for justice to be brought for the murdered and missing Indigenous children and victims of Canada's residential school system. We believe that for true healing and harmony to occur, we must end the cycle of oppression while working together as we move forward in truth and reconciliation. We can be better, we can do better. Welcome to Permastote. I'm your host, Derek Hyatt. In this podcast, we talk to your favorite surfers and stand-up paddleboarders from across the Great Lakes, Canada, the U.S., and beyond. We take a peek into their lives and find out what it means to be stoked. Is it a natural state of euphoria, elation, a relentless commitment? I also talk to other permastoked individuals with ties to surf culture, such as artists, entrepreneurs, environmentalists, filmmakers, musicians, and much more. Join us each week in learning from these field experts and enthusiasts, while also being inspired by their undying passion, insights, and rad tales. Permastoked is presented by Freshwater Surf Goods, your surf brand devoted to spreading the stoke across the unsalted seas and cultivating pride amongst the surf community. We do this by providing products and apparel that celebrate the awesomeness of both Great Lakes and Canadian surf culture. Stand out in the tribe by rocking our gear today. But hey, don't just stand around on the beach looking cool. Check out our Stoke Academy and try surfing or stand up paddleboarding. Get away to Ontario's magnificent Bruce Peninsula where we offer Paddle Canada certified basic and advanced sub courses private lessons, tours, subsurfing, and even beginner surfing lessons. Visit www.freshwatersurfgoods.com to sign up for your freshwater fantasy. In this episode, I chat with legendary artist Drew Brophy about art, surfing, and much more. A lifelong surfer and student of physics, Drew Brophy is known for his quantum art, which incorporates sacred geometry and his distinctive style of surf-inspired art. Drew's surf art innovated a global shift in the way that surfboards were painted in the 1990s. You may remember him from Lost Surfboards. 
His style is used in schools as a teaching tool and thousands of artists are influenced by his work. Drew's quantum art is inspired by his studies of laws of nature, solar dynamics, and ancient cultures. Through his paintings, Drew strives to show that everything is energy and that we are all connected. This episode was recorded on June 29th, 2021 and may contain coarse language that could be deemed offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Drew Brophy, welcome to the Permastoke podcast, dude. How are you, man? I'm great. I'm here in Southern California, San Clemente, and uh, stoked to be with you. Oh, awesome, man. And I'm talking to you from Canada, up in the Great White North. Have you spent any time up here, Drew? Yeah, I have, actually. Um, uh, surfed up in Victoria, and nice. uh, I've been to some of the Great Lakes, not necessarily on the Canada side, but, you know, that's the same uh, surf spots, you know, all around there. Yeah. So actually caught waves in Lake Superior, which was really good. Not too right. far from the Canadian border. And um, what spot were you at there? Were you at uh, Stony, what's it called? Yeah. Stony Beach or something? Yeah, Stony Point, I think it's called. Yeah, Stony Point. And um, yeah, the, the, it was funny because that's the, the spot. It was only about waist high surfing there. And then I caught waves on the other side, uh, kind of near Pictured Rock somewhere. And so okay. that was kind of cool. And then um, I was really excited just to surf. Uh, you know, anywhere I go, I like to surf, whether even in the river waves and um, out on Victoria and Vancouver Island. It, that was just like amazing uh, hiking through the woods and, you know, coming up on these like little coves that were just majestic and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of unexplored areas up there that probably some wonderful waves that haven't been ridden yet. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when I was talking to Maria, she told me that you guys had surfed um, in Victoria, but it sounded like you hadn't made your way up to Tofino yet. Yeah, um, we didn't have time to go adventure too far. And we planned on going back. And, uh, and I was hoping actually to do some of the islands north of there. Uh, take a plane and and get dropped off up there but uh it hadn't worked out yet but i haven't given up hope yet yeah so just knowing a bit about you and you know following you listening to you on other podcasts and things i know that uh you take a lot of joy in going to these sort of sacred places and feeling the energy around you um there's an island north of uh, vancouver island called Haida Gwaii you might have heard of and yeah, um, it's very raw and untouched. And, you know, the indigenous people are are there and, and very much still um, in touch with with their ways in, in certain ways. Um, I've seen some video. I think that would be incredible just to go up there and sit amongst the cedars and just take all that in. Yeah. And take a, a couple different kinds of boards. You know, one of the great things about, you know, surfing and, you know, paddle surfing is, you know, you can explore areas that are uh, very hard to get to and yeah. access them from the water. So I really enjoy that. Um, you know, I took a paddleboard to Maine uh, mm. last year and I was paddling all these nooks and crannies that, you know, normally people can't get to. And unfortunately, the swell wasn't up, but I found some spots that next time I go back, uh, I'll have to go uh, see if the how the wave is. But you know, it's just a great way to access uh, remote places. Yeah. And, you know, as surfers, we're so lucky that we uh, 
want, number one, we're excited to go to these places in search of waves, but we really do get the benefit of um, being in places that just normal people don't get to go to. So, um, you know, surfers have a really special connection and um, I'm glad I'm one of them. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they wrote that book, The Secret. I feel like we have the secret. I mean, that special feeling of being in a wave or being in a tube. It's so undescribable in a way. Um, I feel like a lot of the world is really missing out. Yeah, you're right. Um, you know, always uh, trying to explain it to non-surfers is like, you know, you're, it forces you to be super present. You know, mm. there's no, there's no uh, time or, you know, availability of your consciousness to think about anything else about other than what you're doing especially when you're riding a wave, but when you're sitting there, you're so in tune with all the movements and the wind and the noises that it forces you to be present in that way. And you're constantly having to move to get in the right spot. And you're really in rhythm with nature. And in a way you're feeling that heartbeat of the planet, which is this, this movement of the water. And uh, you're right. I mean, it's just, it's exhilarating. And, you know, I don't know what other people do, but um, I I feel like they're missing out as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, we talked a little bit about the Great Lakes and Surfing Canada. I'm curious if you were given a project that you were asked, okay, you need to do a painting to represent Great Lakes surfing or maybe Canadian surfing. What do you think that would look like? And what do you think your process would look like around that? Oh, wow. Well, with the Great Lakes, um, you know, trying to find like maybe one of the better spots. It doesn't have to be the biggest spot, but, you know, find in I'd want it to be out of the way. Um, spend in, in, I, I listen to some of the older guys mm. and their process. So back in the day before we had modern uh, weather predictions, uh, they had to spend a lot of time at a spa- at a spot in order to see if it had waves. And so you hear about these people camping out in these places for months and um, that might be what it takes. Mm. So, you know, to set up the proper adventure, you know, you'd want to do your research, but also just spending time and seeing it flat, you know, maybe mm. snorkeling on the bottom and seeing what the bottom's like and, really absorbing it. And then that magic day when the waves are good, even if it was just like little knee high peelers that you rode a longboard on, you know, you'd be so thankful for those waves and you're like, wow, this place, you know, on its day is probably epic. So on that stage, you know, you might not get a chance to see it, you know, in all its glory, but you can imagine you know, if you if you got to witness a little day where it was just kind of peeling down the beach and on a little cobblestone point or something, you could just imagine when it all comes together on the perfect day mm. and you know it happens. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what my paintings are all about, you know, like just like, wow, sometimes I get to experience the perfect day. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just see like a a place and I know that given the right conditions, this place fires. So it's a lot of imagination, but I I do think that you have to spend time in a spot to really soak up its energy. And, uh, and so that's probably what my process would be. 
you know, just go on full on adventure mode and, you know, camp out for, I don't think I could do months like the guys used to do, but I could do a, you know, a week yeah. to 10 days. I love that. So it's not enough just to look at photographs. It You have to be there and feel it. Yeah. You know, I, um, you know, everything that I paint through experience, uh, real mm -hmm. experience. And I think that's one of the reasons why my stuff's, uh, it has a lot of energy to it. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of people that paint waves and paint surfing and stuff that, but they don't really live it. Um, mm. it's a big difference between painting from a photograph and painting from experience. And, okay. um, uh, you know, painting photographs is, or from photographs is fine and it's cool and all, but, um, you really need to soak it up, like what it's like to be in a big giant barrel and, you know, or what it's like paddling out the Mavericks, you know, or what, you know, uh, what it's like, you know, surfing at Chopu. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people that paint those waves, but they've never been there. Mm. Um, and so I think that gives me a little bit more credibility. You know, I love surfing those waves. Um, I've seen them in all their glory. I've seen them flat. I've been injured at them. I've mm. seen the reefs up close and, I've been held down at the bottom at Mavericks and oh, yikes. so that whole experience goes into the painting because it, it it's all of those things. So and, there's much more authenticity to your yeah, art. Yeah. Well, you know, even if people can't see it in the art, they just know that, you know, you're living that uh, truth of that, you know, it's my lifestyle. That's what I like to do. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes with any uh, sport or activity. Um, if you're living that lifestyle, it does just come across as more authentic. You're more knowledgeable. And um, let's face it, it's part of the story, right? It's like, yeah, that's what everybody want, wants is they see this piece of art and they're like, yeah, well, let me tell you about this guy. You know, he he was there. Yeah. And um, he told me a story about it. And every time I look at this piece of art, I think about that. And, um, you know, maybe that person doesn't have the opportunity to have that same experience, but they become part of the story by just having the art. Yeah. Um, and that's there again, something you don't get from um, something that's just, uh, you know, painting from photographs. Yeah, I hear you. So if you were to come to the Great Lakes for that process, I would recommend coming either in the fall or winter because you're known for these wicked, awesome wave paintings. And I have a feeling it would just be a flat painting if you came in the summertime, be a bunch of people in board shorts and flat water. Yeah, I'm not I'm not scared of the cold. Uh, wetsuits are good these days. And, uh, yeah. you know, if the waves are good, it's worth the effort. Uh, and, you know, being even being out there in the cold, I mean, I've surfed some crazy waves in the cold and uh, it just it's that much more worthwhile. And um, and the adventure is more and the, the the sitting by the fire later is that much more important. And, you know, all yeah. of these things, um, you know, a lot. I, I've been to South Africa and, you know, surfing J Bay it looks perfect and everything, but it gets cold, man. Mm. One day, the biggest day I'd ever surfed J-Bay, it had snowed on all the mountains and oh, wow. it, it was so cold, like nobody was going surfing. 
and the waves were just giant, like out of control. And I'd been there for about a month and I was like, well, this is the biggest day I've seen. I'm going out for sure. And so by the time I got my stuff together, I noticed that some other people had paddled out and I was like, um, kind of excited because I didn't really want to surf by myself, but I would have. And so it was really hard to get out and I get out there and lo and behold, it was friends of mine mm. that I knew. And, uh, it was Greg long from here in San Clemente, uh, his buddy, Grant Twiggy Baker, who's from South Africa. And then my other good friend, Gary Linden. And, uh, you know, they had all made the effort too to go out there, and we had gotten these big giant barrels that day. I don't think any of us made them out, and we got so thrashed and dragged down the beach, and it was so cold walking back up that beach. And we were hoping somebody somebody would get out, but everybody kept paddling back out, so we ended up surfing longer than we expected. And I can just remember sitting by the fire afterwards, and just uh, that whole experience was just surreal. And um, I think that's another thing to think about is uh, you wanted some to share it with somebody, mm. you know. So, you know, I'd come up there in the winter and hang out and uh, catch some barrels. <laughs> so have you uh, ever had an ice beard yet? Uh, I haven't had an ice beard yet. Um, I've had to chip ice off my board. Oh, okay. So, that's so, pretty close. Yeah, that was up in Oregon. So surfing up in Oregon, I went to go get my board off the roof of my van and it was iced over. And, oh, wow. and uh, it was funny because I was trying to get it off. I was afraid I was going to ding my board, but it was a lot yeah. of ice. I, I was tripping. Wow. And uh, now, Speaking of Oregon or the Pacific Northwest, I do know that you did a painting up in Victoria for... Uh, I believe it was H2O Surf Shop, and you yeah. painted one of the eagles that was positioned in town. Is that right? Yeah, that was that was great. I sat out there and uh, painted it out in front of the shop, and uh, I think I was the only one like painting live. Mm. Um, I think everybody else had painted theirs ahead of time, and oh, so okay. I think it was a real treat for the the people everywhere because I I just I showed up there and painted and took me a couple days and uh yeah that was a great experience and you know that's really what we try to do Maria and I is like if we're traveling we'd like to stop into the local surf shop or you know friends or whatever and you know paint some things usually surfboards and um and then just hang out and you know talk about surfing and and share you know ideas and experiences and and then hopefully go, you know, surf some of the local spots. And I think that's the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, when I grew up, I was from uh, South Carolina and there wasn't a whole lot of surfers around. So you actually looked for people to surf with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all these years later, you know, people are trying to get away from each other. And yeah. I'm not, not so sure that's the, the best way to look at it. I think that if you are from out of town, if you came up somewhere and said, Hey, you know, we're from out of town and, you know, you had something to share with these people, um, they would be more than happy to hang out and share waves with you. And then you can return the favor when they come to your place. I mean, that was kind of the idea. And I think we need to get back to that. Uh, yeah. I, I don't like the, 
the uh, the crowds like being ostracized or you know everybody saying this is my spot or whatever. Um, in the in the same vein, though, you can't show up and be mean to people and expect to be liked either. So that kind of happens. So I think we need to readjust our uh, expectations and our behavior and get back to those old days where you were just stoked to see other people that like to surf like you and, and uh, hang out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess America's got this big divide right now and it's even out on the break too. <laughs> yeah, it, it is, you know, um, especially with COVID, it seems like nobody's working. Um, mm. I'm working harder than ever. And then I go to go surf and everybody's on vacation. And, and yeah. so that's been a, an adjustment. Um, mm. A lot of people working from home and uh, that's kind of been cool too. You know, a lot of my friends who had nine to five jobs who are now working from home, they're surfing a lot more and yeah. not just surfing, but they're surfing with their kids a lot more. And so their quality of life has gone up and yeah. uh, you're starting to see people you haven't seen in a long time, which is nice. Um, it is more crowded. Um, maybe there is some division with things, um, uh, but the surfers aren't so divided. You go down to the beach and nobody's wearing a mask and nobody cares. But then if you go up to the coffee shop, it's about 50, 50. So, yeah. you know, it does seem like the surfers are a little bit more relaxed um, and a little bit healthier, you know, due yeah. to the fact that they surf. Yeah. I think we all need to take some responsibility for our own health and not necessarily be scared of others. Um, if you feel you're, uh, in danger or compromise, you take appropriate actions, but don't penalize somebody else who's had a clean and, and lifestyle that's uh, healthy and, and they don't feel that they are in any kind of danger. So yeah, there's some kind of balance true. there. And, and that, and that's kind of the whole idea is, is balance and everything. Yeah. Uh, and we're working through that. I think everybody's kind of realizing that uh, we need to, to kind of just balance this out. You can't go full one way or the other. This is part of why I moved to the forest though. I just feel like it's gone, it's gone mad in certain places, you know, like people are just more impatient sometimes and things. And, and I get the whole mask thing, but an example for me is, you know, with curbside pickup, like I went to Canadian tire to pick up my order and, you know, you pull up and I didn't have a mask on cause I'm in my vehicle. And, you know, the, the person very like in a snobbish tone was like, you must be wearing a mask for us to help you. And it's like, dude, whoa, like COVID police, like relax. Like what happened to the niceties? You know, like we all don't, we're all in this together. We don't know all the new social norms and rules yet. We're still figuring this out. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, definitely a hot button and, you know, I, I don't like it. I, I personally haven't worn a mask this whole time. Um, and I don't go places if people are uncomfortable mm. and I just take that upon myself. And, uh, you know, for the people who are very scared, I just, I have compassion for them because they, they are, um, concerned and maybe overly concerned or, rightfully concerned, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very difficult 
uh, spot to be in, but I think we should have compassion for the people who are um, maybe wound up about it, um, very scared. Um, we're not living in each other's shoes, so maybe they do have, you know, some elderly parent at home that they're worried about. But you know, there again, I, I think it's it's a shame that um, you, you know uh, some people are penalized for having a healthy lifestyle and a, uh, you know, when, you know, I kind of feel like we go to the beach and things. One of the big things that happened here was uh, when they locked everything down, some kids went surfing and they flipped out. They sent helicopters and boats and a whole bunch of police. And it was a total overkill. And you're just sitting there like, really? (laughs) And so, um, you know, it made us angry because, you know, one of the, I think one of the safest things to be would be in the ocean and then in the sunshine and being active and yeah. um, fully so, vexed. Yeah. And so it's just, it just blew it out of proportion. And so, um, and another thing that happened to me was I was hiking in Maine and we were actually picking blueberries on top of a mountain. And it was one of the only times I ever got yelled at for not wearing a mask. And, mm. uh, so I'm outside on a mountain out in the middle of nowhere and I hadn't seen anybody in hours and I was more concerned about a bear coming up than anything else. And a young couple was, you know, hundred yards away hiking and the guy came, you know, stomping up and, and I'm thinking he was looking for directions or something like that. So I was really polite. And uh, he basically said it was irresponsible for me not to have a mask on. And I was like, well, until you just came the hundred yards to come yell at me about this, I wasn't planning <laughs> on getting anywhere near you. And yeah. so, um, you know, my, my thought is I just stay away from people and, um, you know, that type of thing. But there again, we have to have some compassion for people. We need to have some, uh, you know, some calm until this works itself out. And, yeah, um, and, and so, you know, I don't like being penalized for things, but I'm not going to penalize somebody else for, um, you know, being nervous about things. So, yeah. and that's another well, benefit of surfing. I mean, we, we have surfing that really levels us out and calms us yeah. down, keeps us healthy. And not everybody has that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might be sitting there watching the TV all the time and just getting freaked out by the second. Yeah. Um, so I think the best thing we can do is, is um, be the best people we can be, be kind, compassionate, and maybe that's going to be enough to calm the other people down and maybe come out of their shell a little bit and not be so nervous about the outside world, which, um, you know, I don't think is any more dangerous than it used to be. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, when this is all over, or whenever, you know, something shifts, I can't wait to go to a concert again, a movie. I can't wait to give somebody a hug who's not my wife. I love my wife, but man, like human touch, it's a big deal. I haven't touched anybody in like almost two years. Wow. Yeah. So you know, I, I think up here in Canada, it's uh, it's not as hardcore as the States in the, the panic way, but in, in terms of like wearing masks and all the safety protocols, 
it's, it's still fairly intense. Like we're not, you know, shopping and doing normal stuff by any means yet. So. Yeah. Well, here in the States, it depends on what state you're in. Okay. And so most of the States are pretty wide open. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only a few that are uh, locked up Um, California being one of them, but we're in San Clemente and San Clemente is, um, is one of the free areas in California. Um, so everybody's coming here to, uh, get, get away from all the lockdowns and everything. Okay. Interesting. And the only reason we're getting away with it here is because the sheriff, um, decided that he wasn't going to enforce any of these rules because he felt they were unconstitutional. And, um, I think that's allowed us to have some sense of normalcy here. Okay. which has been really nice. Um, but we are being flooded with uh, refugees from other cities, LA, San Francisco. And people come down here and they can't believe that everything's open. Um, but then if you just drove across the border into, you know, Arizona or Nevada or, you know, Wyoming or something like that, um, it's wide open. So. Okay. Now I've heard you guys refer to San Clemente as a small town. I mean, what's the population of that place? Um, well, I think it's like 65,000. Okay. But, you know, I would say the great majority of that is on the other side of the freeway, which is like a whole nother town. Okay. Um, So, you know, we kind of refer to it as the, the, people that all live right kind of in it's like a little bowl like a little cove okay and so it's probably half of that so you kind of know everybody you know all the business owners um and that's another reason why we maybe uh, got through this a little easier because we we all are all friends and neighbors um you know i wasn't afraid of my neighbors i had concern for their businesses and for their families um, we looked out for each other and, um, you know, we didn't want our town to die. So we, we supported each other financially, you know, by going to their businesses and not going to like the big box stores. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's an, another, you know, big thing. When you live in a smaller community, you're more likely to uh, stick together and help each other. And in some of the bigger areas, you know, it's not so much like that. You know, you don't talk to your neighbors normally. You're not going to start when you have some kind of weird, uh, you know, social and, and, you know, health problem going on. Gotcha. And, and I think that's a shame. It, it just really shows that um, if, if there's a time where you need, you know, friends and support, it, it was this past year. Yeah. And so anybody who had gotten away from that really felt that isolation. Yeah. And, and um, I'm thankful that I wasn't in that situation. I know a lot of people that were. Um, and they really had no idea that there was other places that weren't experiencing the same thing. Yeah. And, um, and that's a very lonely place to be, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then I think some people feel that if they had to go through this, everybody should have to go through this. But, mm-hmm. you know, different communities handled it different. So True. it doesn't mean it's it's better or it's right or it's whatever. It's just what different people did. Um, our community stuck together and, and, and try to help each other. We went surfing 
And um, it was the biggest sense in, in the heart of it, like when it was really crazy. Um, uh, we would go surfing and it was the only normal thing that was happening. Mm. And it felt good. And, um, and so I think that helped us all ease through it and then eventually kind of leave it behind. Yeah. Um, and so that, you know, there again, surfing saves the day. And I'm, I'm sure certain communities that do other things, I don't know if like, you know, like fly fishing or, you know, some of the people who back maybe snowshoe or something like that, yeah. um, where, where it's not so condensed. Mm. I mean, you know, if you like to, uh, you know, maybe going to concerts is, you know, not maybe the wisest thing to do, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think within reason, there's, there's plenty of things that you can do safely and responsibly. Yeah. And, and um, and I like to doing. live fairly isolated, but there's, you know, there's also that buzz you get every once in a while, that energy from being in that mass of people, like, Sort of, yeah. it's like charging your battery every once in a while, you know, you just got to charge up and then it's like, oh, I'm good for a bit. But, you know, it's great to hear a story about a community coming together and not shunning people, right? I know my neighbors, they have been wonderful. Um, they're always bringing stuff over. They brought something over to me the other day. I don't even know what it is. It's some kind of like living organism, I think, that you actually use to make kombucha. <laughs> Do you know? I don't know. They said so. Yeah, go, uh, Gobi or Sobi. I don't know what it is. But um, speaking of community, though, Drew, so when COVID kind of hit last year around March or whatever, uh, I was working and then pretty soon I got laid off and I had all this time on my hands. And so I really committed to working on my my surf business and, and my lessons that I teach and things like this. But I also started joining you guys for the Posca paint parties, man. That was my one of my only outlets I had, it felt like to the outside world for a few months. So, you know, I say, thank you for that. You even highlighted me on the show one time, Yeah. Um, you know, on Santino's art every week. I mean, uh, how, where is the paint party process at now? I've not really been paying as much attention. Is it still happening? Is it on hold or? Yeah, we put it on hold um, just because we had to, you know, focus on other things, but we want to start it up again. Um, you know, that whole uh, Posca paint party, uh, you know, number one, I want to thank Posca paint pens. Uh, they have supported me all these years and uh, they're the ones that really, you know, pushed to have that. Uh, they wanted to give back. I wanted to give back. And I felt that, you know, that would be the best way to do it. And and it was before Zoom really took off. So we were like one of the first people doing these Zoom things. Yeah. And like you, you, you were, you saw them. We've had anyone anywhere from, you know, 30 to 300 people from all over yeah. the world on there. And we did, we all felt like we were hanging out and yeah. that was like in the thick of, um, of the lockdowns of the initial lockdowns. And um, I really do think that that helped a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And art in itself is a therapy, but also that the Zoom platform really felt like we were all hanging out. And um, I can only imagine what it, it what it was like to some of these people who were, um, you know, like, like 
you know, those kids down in Argentina, I mean, they never left their house for a very long time. I had another friend in Peru that they weren't allowed to go out on the streets. Um, there were certain places that were extreme and other places that weren't so extreme. Um, you know, we had people from, you know, Africa, Senegal, Japan, um, uh, a couple of the girls from New Zealand, they were all locked down. And so there, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction. And so what a fantastic way to, you know, there again, bring people together. And it was really hard coming up with new ideas. You know, originally we were doing three times a week and then we went to two and then to once a week. Uh, I don't even know how many shows we did, uh, but every one of them was fantastic. Yeah. Um, I miss those people, you know, they've become friends and, yeah. um, but everybody had to get busy figuring out their lives and how they were going to reset. And I think one day, you know, we'll reconnect with a lot of people and, and we'll get their take on it, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, those little, little paint parties, uh, help them get through a very hard time. Yeah. It was a genius idea. Whoever came up with it, you or Maria, but it was a, it was a great time. Let me show you what I was working on most recently here. I just got to grab it. Oh, I saw that in the background. Yeah. So for anybody listening who doesn't know what we're talking about, Drew Brophy, obviously the famous surf artist who uses the, these Posca paint pens. Um, and also for anybody listening, this podcast is a little different than normal because Drew, I've heard so many shows with you where they're asking you the same thing, you know, how'd you get started, this and that. For anybody wondering that stuff, I recommend listening to other podcasts with Drew or picking up a copy of his book. It's amazing. I read it uh, a few months ago and I read it last night as a refresher. Great story of Drew's life, a story of, uh, you know, having a dream and making it come true, right? Yeah. Um, so for today's podcast, I have more specific questions, things I've heard you talk about that I'm curious to dive into a little more. But before we go there, I'll show you my most recent. Uh, yeah, look at that. That's awesome. Yeah, this this is my like Black Lives Matter kind of art I was doing. So I did a like a Jim Phillips inspired uh, hand. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, great a little time. bit of everything in there. That's great. Nice yeah, and clean. No. Good blends. Good job. Well, I think that's the struggle for me. It's it's always comes down to the blending, but I haven't also used the same surfaces as you. Like you're using surfboards a lot and metals and things. I've only ever used paper and canvas. So I kind of wonder if that if that would feel differently on some of those other surfaces. Yeah, sometimes you like the fiberglass is the smoothest surface. Mm. And then sometimes on the canvas or on the paper, you want to coat it so that the paint, you know, can be moved around a little smoother so you can blend it. So there's all kinds of little tricks. And, uh, you know, we try to go over them in those paint parties and just get everybody uh, having fun and try to make it less frustrating. And And once they settle in on an idea, then you want them to be able to sit down and start and finish it in one sitting. Right on. Now, Drew, I see lots of stuff behind you there. What are you currently working on? Oh man, I've got so many things. I got a lot of surfboards. 
um, working on uh, coloring books. Uh, so mm. the one in the backs of coloring book. Uh, oh, this, wow. this board behind me is for uh, Jerry Lopez. He's going to oh, write sweet. Kelly Slater's wave pool in it. Wow. Um, I've got a couple other boards over here. Uh, there's a board for, uh, for Griffin Colapinto. And that's a copy of uh, a board I did for Andy Irons way back in the day. Amazing. So I got a lot of requests. I got more paintings over here. That's the great year, which is the 26,000 year uh, cycle of the solar system going through the galaxy. Wow. Um, I got a couple album covers. I got some stuff I'm doing for the, the dead and company, the what's left of the grateful dead. Uh, and so yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Now you brought up album album covers. Now my all-time favorite band is Sublime. And so that's one of my questions is I'd like to hear about that experience you had painting the album cover for I think it was the Sirens album uh with Rome. What did that process entail? And and just tell us about it, like maybe even this, how stoked you were just to get that gig. Yeah, you know, of course, uh, you know, being here in Southern California, I watched Sublime go from party band around the, you know, kegs to to going big to Bradley passing away to, you know, being on the radio and exploding all around the country and the world. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we were part of all of that, you know, lost back in the day, they're sublime. They had sublime music on their videos and those guys were playing around here back in the nineties when we were yeah. all just getting started. And, um, you know, Bradley and them used to come and get boards. Oh. So nobody knew who they were back then. They weren't anybody, but then they hit it big and, um, it was really sad um, that he didn't get to enjoy the the fame. Yeah, really. And so all the years later when, you know, they approached me to do the Sirens album with Rome, uh, it was great. I was really happy that, uh, you know, the music was still going. And, uh, you know, meeting those guys, they just kind of all threw ideas at me and, and I just regurgitated it back out onto the canvas. And it was all of them just having like fun throwing ideas at me and it was kind of a mess, but uh, you know, sitting, watching them practice and things like that. I mean, Rome shreds the guitar and uh, Eric Wilson. I mean, he's kind of a big, big dude. He's kind of, yeah. you know, kind of oafy and like, yeah. what he had more equipment than anybody had ever seen. So, you know, really? he just play the bass. He does all the sounds. He's got all kind of crazy gadgets and oh wow. he didn't talk much. And it, it, I didn't think he was the sharpest tool in the shed, but man, when he gets in his zone, he's badass. So like yeah. have, just, you know, you have a lot of respect for people when they're in their zone yeah. and, and seeing those guys kind of walk in and, you know, you just think they're like, you know, party animals or something like that. And they get in that zone, you see their genius. Yeah. So I really, uh, hats off to anybody who's found their genius and their spot. Those guys definitely have, uh, Rome's amazing continuing on the, the, the music. So other people can be exposed to it and enjoy it. 
And, um, you know, as Eric told me, he said, yeah, if I'd passed away, I'd hope the boys would still be playing. And um, that's what they're doing. So, yeah. You know, that's not always a very well-received um, thing, right? Like people step in, I mean, like Van Halen, for example, like other bands, people haven't always been super receptive. Um, but I saw Sublime and Rome in concert in Vancouver a couple of years ago with The Offspring. And it was just fantastic. And your art, the album cover, did you see them in concert? Because it was huge yeah. behind them, right? Yeah, that was yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, but I will say, Rome, the way he handled himself and was the respect to the music and how grateful he was, like he just seemed like such a stoked kid who got the luckiest gig in the in the music world, you know, like I really have a lot of respect for him. I think they're doing fantastic. Yeah, and I don't I don't think anybody else could do it. I mean, he's doing yeah. it better than anybody else. It's it's authentic and genuine. And now watching him play the guitar really impressed me. Uh, because I played the guitar and I was just like, wow, you know, like it's not it wasn't forced, you know, mm. it wasn't like he had to learn the material and like uh try to pull it off. He was already living that, and when they met him they said, we got it. Like, we've never seen anybody do it this good. So, you know, uh, some of the comments I'd heard it's sublime without Bradley and that kind of thing. And that's when I had asked Eric about it. And he said, no, man, this is, I mean, we don't, we want to keep playing. Yeah. And, and I'm really happy that they are because I mean, people get to enjoy it and see it on stage and then continue on. And, and those guys are cool. You know, we're all just people trying to do stuff. And, um, you, you know, there again, when you see people in their genius, they're all in their genius. Yeah. And uh, they're sharing that with the world. It's it's inspiring people. It's making people's lives better. Um, so hats off to them. I'm, I'm just stoked. I get to do some stuff for them every once in a while. Yeah. And uh, it's always fun. You never know what you're going to get with those guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. Now, another artist who's closely related to that whole crew is uh, Opie and the Long Beach Dub All-Stars, who I also love. And they came to Vancouver and that was so electric. They were it wasn't even a concert. They just played like a bar. And, you know, after the show, they were all out smoking cigarettes like I had a conversation with Opie. Um, you know, and this is the guy who, you know, tattoo artists and drew the picture for 40 ounces of freedom. I mean, I just thought it was so cool how down earth those guys are. But my curiosity has spiked about that whole. Internet's getting slow. Oh, OK. Are we back? <laughs> uh, we're back. We're back live. So I was saying that through that music that I've listened to, like I like Long Beach Dub All-Stars, Slightly Stupid, all those guys. Like, tell me what it is about that Long Beach culture, LBC. Like, you know, these guys seem like they have kind of an edge to them. Like, how does Long Beach compare to the rest of California that kind of gives them that, maybe I, I guess I'll call it an attitude, like a certain kind of attitude or individualism that just seems really rad. Yeah, well, you know, like all the beach towns are different and, you know, 
San Clemente is really chill and Laguna Beach is chill. Newport Beach is like all the rich dudes. Huntington Beach is a little edgier. And then you get up into Long Beach, it's like super edgy, you know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's Los Angeles by the sea, you know? So, you know, it, I think the guys that grow up there grow up a little harder, a little grittier, and um, it takes more to make it. Mm. They probably have had a lot more uh, experiences, uh, you know, here in San Clemente. Yeah. And San Clemente, the kids got it made, you know, it's like living in paradise. And up there, it's like, you got to fight for everything you got. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of like Santa Cruz, you know, Santa Cruz, the guys are really edgy on the the West side and on the East side, they're kind of soft, you know? So it just depends on how you grew up. And, um, you know, uh, music, especially, uh, you know, adversity makes great music, Mm. you know? And so when they, they start singing about it or they're angry about it and they sing about it, it's people like, oh yeah, I've had that feeling too. But to them, I think it's happened to them a little bit more often and a little bit more uh, harshly. And so, you know, you might get a little pissed off about it and want to scream it from your lungs. Like, Hey man. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, those dudes are gnarly. Like, you know, Z-Man and those guys from the Long Beach Dub All-Stars. I mean, you know, they're just a different breed of people. Um, The age group, too. uh, They seem like, uh, especially that group of guys, you know, kind of coming out of the punk scene, Mm. you know, and then kind of getting exposed to reggae and creating like that ska, like punk style, which has really, you know, become like a Southern California style. Yeah. Um, the tattoo scene, you know, like just, those were the first guys who were just tatted up like no tomorrow. And you were just like, Whoa. Um, yeah. you know, prior to that, that, that wasn't such the case. Yeah. They, they kind of made that whole look cool. Mm. And, uh, you know, they were into hot rods and motorcycles and tattoos and, you know, they probably had more blue, their parents probably had more blue collar jobs working in, you know, more gritty things. And so, I mean, I think that's where it comes from. That makes um, a lot of sense. Yeah. But the one thing we all had in common was surfing and skateboarding. Mm. So like going back to that idea of like going to somebody else's town and bridging that gap, you know, you could go up there or they could come down here and surf and it didn't matter what they look like or anything like that. They love to surf. They're in, right? Yeah. And so that's how everybody became friends, you know, and they came down and, you know, played in, you know, up and down the coast and somebody would throw a party or a kegger somewhere and they're like, yeah, we'll play. And, um, you know, it goes back to everybody became friends and it didn't matter who you were, how rich you were, how poor you were, what color you were, whether you had tattoos up and down your neck and face or whatever. Everybody was just like, okay, you're in. And, um, you know, Lost uh, was really part of that as well, you know, because mm. we were doing the boards and we were kind of all the people that nobody wanted. At least that's mm. the way it felt, you know, like yeah. I wasn't, wasn't quite good enough to work for other companies and nobody was giving us a whole bunch of opportunities. So we just decided to do it ourselves and, and everybody was welcome. 
nobody was turned away. It didn't matter if you surfed or didn't surf or how good you surfed or whatever you were in mm. and you're always invited. If we're having a party you were in. Um, so there was a big mix of people and, um, you know, I can't really say how that all happened other than it kind of felt like we were the people that got all, we were all the people that kind of got left out of whatever else was going on. Yeah. And, and it turned out to be a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that resonated with people across the country that were feeling that same way mm. that, you know, there's a lot of people that get left out. And, but if we all stick together, there's actually more of us than them. Yeah. And, uh, and so in a way it felt good. It was just like, wow, you know, I'm not really getting left out. There's a lot of us. And so when we would travel around and, you know, go to different places, surfing and everything, um, we we're genuinely stoked to be there. We're genuinely, uh, happy to meet the local surfboard shaper or, you know, local pro and, you know, we wouldn't be scared to eat raw oysters or something, you know, whatever they were serving, yeah. you know, I never had a beer I didn't like. I was, you know, I wasn't picky. I was just like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And we we're easy to get along with and hang out with. And um, I think that resonated with a lot of people in Southern California and then across the country and eventually around the world. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's the success in, of sublime, lost um myself um yeah. just kind of being that not too good for anybody i mean there's a lot of things out there that it's like that there's these country clubs and they want they're nice to you but they don't really want you in it yeah gotcha and i don't necessarily want to be in it i'll create yeah. my own deal so that music you know that came over i was this kid in high school in you know southern ontario and i'm hearing this music and it's getting me stoked because i'm obsessed with surfing meanwhile no one else is surfing i was one of the first kids in my town to have a sector nine longboard like that was my whole scene so sublime's music just like permeated inside of me and i think that's actually how i discovered you and lost was through that because i remember the, the Sublime self-titled album with Bradley's back on it. Yeah. On the back of that cover, there's some really rad art that I've never been able to figure out who the artist was. And it's very similar to your style. Yeah. Do you by chance know? Or? Yeah, that's Opie Ortiz. That was Opie. Okay, so Opie's yeah. art. I'm pretty sure that's Opie's art. And uh, Okay, so he did this cool little like surfer guy with his mouth kind of wide open. Looked like that famous painting. Um, I forget what that's called. But anyway, riding this wave. And so I got that tattooed on my back. And I think that kind of took me down the rabbit hole of that whole style of art. Um, so it was only a few years later that I had a custom board made. And I made sure that I got the guys to put like, you want to maybe I shouldn't have done that, but I <laughs> they made a sticker of your like your wave and put it on my board. So that was about like 2004. So that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, it just really kind of shows that you know my my art's heavily influenced from the you know tattoos, and I was going to be a tattoo artist uh, out of high school, and 
it's a long story, but I have a famous uh, uncle that's one of the most badass tattoo artists of his time. And really, and uh, he basically told me I wasn't allowed to give tattoos and I wasn't going to get a tattoo. And, but I always loved him because I grew up with him. He was, t- he was a, he was the painted man. I oh, talked okay. about it in my book and yeah. And anyway, you know, so, you know, Opie was doing tattoos for all those guys and doing their art originally and the famous son on the, you know, so, you know, it just shows that, you know, I wasn't the only one, you know, doing this cool art. There was, you know, lots of people, you know, we trained a lot of artists or allowed a lot of artists to paint on boards. And it was just, there were so many people that were just on edge, you know, and wanted to let it out, whether it be music or art or even the surfing, you know, the surfers that, you know, and skaters and stuff that were present in those days weren't, weren't necessarily given the same opportunities as the kids today. They just did it because that's the thing they were good at. And um, that's what they were going to do. Kind of like the, you know, when you think of, you know, the Dogtown guys, yeah, you know, you know, everybody's just, everybody's dealt a set of cards in life, you know, and sometimes you feel like you got a bad hand, but, you know, I look like I got a pair of twos with like surfing and art, but, you know, I, I played them the best I can. And, um, you know, it's just, yeah, that, that art, the art from the, the whole nineties period, uh, is kind of stamped there as something. And, and we see the, we see the inspiration from that today, how tattoos are so amazing. There's so many artists out today. Um, I, I have to think that that movement uh, of the 90s really uh, pushed that forward and made people think a little different and stuff. And uh, it feels good to, you know, kind of contemplate it now. Now, Drew. You're like one of the sickest artists. You could draw up a wicked tattoo, and yet you look like a blank slate, man. What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's uh, it, it's all from my uncle, you know. Uh, oh. So my uncle, uh, he's covered in tattoos. He's late seventies now. Okay. But, but he was uh. Philadelphia Eddie's partner. His name is Jerry Donahoe down in, in Philadelphia, South street. They owned one of the coolest tattoo shops of its era. And, uh, you know, he still owns it. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so I grew up with, with that. Um, and I wanted to be just like him. He was my godfather mm. and he rode a big Harley Davidson and, you know, I wanted to do that too. And, um, but he forcefully told me that that life was not for me and I was not going that to do that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And he told me I, I wasn't allowed to get a tattoo and I'd be checking is but what wow. he said. And, yeah. um, I love tattoos. I absolutely love them. Um, but I listened to my godfather and I didn't get one. Wow. And, I wanted him to give me my first one and he wouldn't let me. And anyway, so, uh, you know, I've drawn a lot of things for tattoos and, and had a, a lot of my stuff tattooed on people. So I guess that's the second best thing. Yeah. True enough. And, um, you know, really just the, the freedom of 
you know, the tattoo culture now and, uh, uh, you know, kind of like the next best thing for me was like surfboard. So it's like a tattoo for your board. Um, you know, I was a, I was a kid that, uh, the last of five. So, you know, I really didn't get anything new. Mm. And so I was always trying to decorate my skateboard or my surfboard or my Chuck Taylors or my jeans or my hat or whatever to just make it my own. And, um, yeah, so I've been tattooing other things. True enough. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, in your book, you talk about, it was so revolutionary to illustrate a surfboard. I mean, to me now it's like, well, that seems like a no brainer. Why, where did that hesitation come from back then? Like why did everyone, were people so hesitant to allow that kind of stuff? Well, if you, if you look at surfboards, I mean, there was people that did do some great art on surfboards, but it was like one-offs, you know, like, Mm. and you couldn't order that from like a shop, you know? So there was guys that would paint boards, usually airbrushing in the seventies that, there were these elaborate paint jobs that were pretty amazing. Um, but you, there again, it wasn't like you could order that. It would cost too much money. Mm. And so I was a surfboard airbrusher before I was hand painting boards. And it's more of a technical job. And it's, um, you know, kind of like painting cars. The foams are very fragile. Um, you know, you're taping it off. They're, you're very limited um, to what you can do and not uh, create a problem for the manufacturing process. So, you know, it is what it is. So I used to paint surfboards that way. And it was very frustrating because you couldn't be that creative. Mm. And there's a lot of tricks and stuff that you can do, but the other catch is nobody wanted to pay for it. So even if you could do something really amazing, nobody would pay you enough money for it. So that was a real hindrance. And, you know, when I discovered the paint pens, I started painting on the glass, which that was taboo. And then, you know, I was painting all these things that were more like tattoos than they were like normal surfboards. Um, It wasn't that people didn't like it. They just didn't get it. It didn't look Mm. the way a surfboard was supposed to look. It looked more like a skateboard. And, um, And so the old old guard of, you know, people making surfboards, it just didn't fit with them. They were like, like I'm ruining the surfboard or something, but, you know, I'd always have a board that was older, uh, that needed cover-ups or dings covered up. And so I was always doing stuff and, you know, I thought it was amazing. And (laughs) I thought, I thought for sure, somebody's going to think this is amazing. And, so when I moved to Hawaii, you know, as I show in my book, you know, I thought I was going to show up in Hawaii and show this to some of the board factories and they were going to like, you know, celebrate me. Yeah. And that's just not what happened. I mean, everybody just looked at me like, what are you doing? And um, so I just kept airbrushing boards and then painting boards on the side. And it took, if you know. You, I just wanted to say if when you read your book, and you talk about that, it just sounds like somebody put a pin in your balloon. Like you were so stoked. Your dad helped yeah. you get to Hawaii. You had the, your whole future ahead of you. And then you get there and it's like, wow, Yeah. And, you know, it was a bummer um, because it was like almost like you had all these ideas and like nobody cared. And, 
Um, yeah, I, I, I think I was just a little ahead of my time and, you know, a little out of step with everybody. So I just had to hang in there until the rest of the people caught up. Mm. And um, that's kind of what happened. So, you know, when I got to, by the time I got to California, I was meeting up with, you know, a, another group of people that were experiencing the same thing I was. And that was mainly Matt Biolis from Lost, um, uh, his partner, Mike Riola. Um, and then for, you know, anybody who was in that time period, which includes, you know, guys like the dudes from Sublime. Mm. And, and, you know, there was lots of people who were feeling that same, you know, that we like to keep it, call it the gatekeepers. You know, there was these people within the businesses of the surf and skate and music industries that, you know, they were, they, they decided who was allowed in and who wasn't. And, you know, it's kind of like none none of us were allowed in. It was like, they had the gatekeepers, they had their friends, they had what they thought was cool. And, um, you know, we got decided that we weren't cool. So we were like, well, we think it's cool. So we don't care what those people think. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So, you know, the, the main thing that I brought to the table with this, with the art on surfboards was production. Mm. So there, there was people that were doing some cool one-off boards, but there again, you couldn't buy them. What was different about me is I painted hundreds and hundreds of them. Yeah. And so every shop that those boards went into, they didn't get one painted surfboard. They got 10 of them and yeah. every one of them was different. And they were just punk rock and just crazy. And what was interesting is when we first started sending them out, the shop owners were a little nervous. And they were like the next layer of gatekeepers that could have shut us down. But it was the public who decided Mm. it was cool. Yeah. And they were the ones that validated what we were doing. Yeah. that's a real important thing for people to remember. Like, don't, you know, get upset that somebody's not liking your stuff or whatever, because maybe you're not showing it to the right people. And people also have to realize there was no computers back then. There was no phones back then. You had to get in people's faces. And so, you know, we had to go to those places and do things. We had to, you know, drop off the surfboards. We had to, you know, do everything in person. And then the funny thing is, you know, we went from like zeros to heroes, like overnight. Yeah. And, um, you know, all of a sudden everybody was calling me and it was an interesting time because, you know, it's a really frustrating thing to, uh, be approached by somebody that, that, you know, promises you the world and wants you to do all this stuff from, for them. And just a year earlier, you were asking them for a job and they were telling you to beat it, get off my property, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and they don't even remember doing it. Yeah. And you're just like, you you realize I'm that same person. And, um, you know, and I haven't changed a bit and I've seen a lot of people come and go and it's funny. uh, Matt Biolis and I were, uh at my birthday i had a birthday party and we gave a toast that we're still here Mm. 
and a lot of people doubted us and and whatnot. And here we are, you know, older people now, and and we're still surfing a lot. Yeah. We're still working. We're still pushing the envelope. And I just thought about like all the people that have come and gone, and we're still here, and we're still at the tip of the spear. Yeah. And um, it just means we've done something right. And, uh, you know, so all of you out there, you know, trust your instincts, um, surround yourself with good people and never give up because, uh, you know, at one point I thought like, well, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe I'm crazy. Yeah. And, um, but I said, no, no, I think my stuff's good. I I think I'm doing. And, um, and there again, the public is the one that decided and got us past all those gatekeepers that were keeping, keeping the creativity down. Wow. I can relate to this story actually big time right now, as I'm listening to you say it, because for me making this podcast, one of the issues on the great lakes is a lot of people want to keep it a secret. like the old guard they don't want the kids knowing that you can surf the great lakes they want their spots you know open so when i started this podcast i i get some of that flack too and some days i'm like what the hell am i doing this for i'm not making any money doing it it's more it's more of a hobby right now and people are giving me shit for doing it but then you get those people who reach out that say oh man i listened to that episode it was so awesome with so and so or something you said influenced me. So I hear you there. Like it's those voices that really can keep you going too. But those other voices can really kind of shut you down as well. Someone who shut you down. I love this part in your book, man. You talk about (laughs) you had like the world's worst guidance counselor. Like this person (laughs) said to you, like, you should not do what you love doing. You shouldn't pursue surfing and art. I wonder, have you ever gotten the chance to just be like in your face? Yeah, I have. And um, (laughs) I had a lot of compassion um, because, you know, I grew up in South Carolina. They didn't know what to do with me. Mm. And I was a good surfer for um, that time period. I, I grew up surfing against people like Kelly Slater and Shane Beshin and Taylor Knox and Rob Machado. And, wow. um, you know, so I was right there with those guys. Yeah. But I was from South Carolina and it was very difficult for me to even get to the contest, much less, you know, do good in them. I didn't even know where I was going to stay those nights. And, I can remember the first time I flew out of the airport in South Carolina, it was a, it was a trailer at an air force base and um, going to California was like going to the moon. Mm. And, um, you know, but once I had traveled all these places, surfing, you know, gave me the opportunity to go to these places. I came back there and, you know, there was no putting that genie back in the bottle. I mean, I'd already seen more than, you know, most of the people that, uh, even my teachers and stuff. So I don't think they could relate to anything that I was doing or my thought pattern. I mean, even the guidance counselor, you know, their thoughts were like trying to place you in schools around, you know, South Carolina or North Carolina. Yeah. And that's your opportunity. And, you know, I was wanting to go to art schools and I wanted to surf professionally and, you 
Um, but, you know, I just, unfortunately, I didn't have the resources or the people that had any knowledge of those things. Mm. And it's not their fault. Yeah. Um, I mean, he was just looking at me like I was out of my mind. Yeah. And, you know, the, the real bummer is, is like, you just think of how many other people got shut down just because they're, they're people just don't know any better. And so yeah. that that goes back to, you know, listening to your instincts and your, your guts and that you're like, Hey, you know what? I think I'm meant for something better, you know, find your purpose and don't be afraid to go for it. What's the worst that's going to happen. You have to go home. Big deal. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that, uh, number one, I didn't listen to my guidance counselor. I walked out of there like, man, he's out of his effing mind. <laughs> And so, and there again, I thought I was crazy. I was just like, okay, everybody's saying no. And I still went and I was, and yeah. I kept hitting these brick walls and uh, I can tell you, I got tired of it and I was depressed and um, mm. it was tough, man. Like, I'm just like sitting here like, man, you know, and I write my book. I knew that I had to get out of there and so did my dad. And, yeah. um, you know, it's a, it, it takes a, a very special person to buy a plane ticket for his son and tell him to leave and don't come back. Yeah. I mean, you don't belong here. You belong out yeah. there somewhere. And he knew he couldn't help me other than that. I mean, mm. so um, I just think about those things now and, and how courageous that was of my father. Yeah. And, um, and he was my biggest fan. Mm. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to look back on it, especially when I was writing that book, I was just like, wow, you know, what a pivoting point, you know, and I thought, you know, all my problems were over, but they had really just started. And, um, you know, uh, it's funny that guidance counselor, uh, I had an art show at the, my hometown and, they had gotten pieces from 30 years of doing art and they filled that art building, uh, that museum all the way up. It was the first person to utilize the whole space. Wow. And it was magnificent to walk through there and see all the art, um, from the early days all the way through. And, um, it was packed. It was the busiest they'd ever had a, a museum show because most time, you know, they do museum shows with very obscure people and it could be something yeah. like quilting or something. So it's a very specific thing. So they get, you know, maybe a, a very small portion of the public to come, you know, my stuff was so broad, you know, it was stuff that people owned, you know, everything from skateboards to boogie boards, to wakeboards, surfboards, to t-shirts, to beach towels, to album covers, you know, so there was something for everybody. And so we drew a lot of different kinds of people and that guidance counselor came to that show and didn't quite remember it the way I did. <laughs> he, he was really proud of me. Wow. Um, wasn't quite sure how I did it. Yeah. Um, but I can say that, you know, a lot of people from the community came and one, and I was, I was given tours three times a day wow. um, to the, to people. And, you know, there would be like, you know, 50 to a hundred people in each tour and they were filling the rooms. You could barely even see the art. It was crazy. 
And, you know, what I really wanted to express to my community where I grew up was that there was people who really helped me um, just by being kind. Um, the first guy to give me Posca pens was, you know, my dad's friend who was an executive that used to go to Japan. He bought them out of kindness, which Posca pens obviously changed my life. Yeah. Um, I had surf shop owners that looked after me and, you know, helped me get where I was going surfing. They would give me jobs and things to design t-shirts or whatnot. Um, there was a guy that owned the local uh, screen printing factory that gave me a job. Uh, this guy, Steve Taylor. And, um, you know, my point to people was that be kind to people, mm. be compassionate to people they're worth it True I, was, I was worth it yeah and th that kindness that people gave me propelled me to where I was going yeah so you know in your everyday life you know just think about that that you know these things that you know are no sweat to you I mean you can decide to be kind or you know whatever in a day or not um, or, you know, you can just kind of be aloof, like nothing's, you know, your problem, but, you know, it, it takes a, a very conscious person to realize that there's somebody that's maybe having a hard time or maybe out of place. Um, maybe they're being neglected, you know, who knows what it is, uh, especially in this COVID thing Yeah, that, you know, this, these acts of compassion and kindness go a long way. Absolutely. And so uh, I want everybody to kind of keep that in mind and that, and, and maybe there's somebody in their lives that that made the difference as well, you know, and it could have been a teacher, it could have been a, a boss, it could have been a neighbor, a friend, whatever. Um, but we're all standing on the good deeds of others. Yeah. Well, I just retired from a career in mental health and addictions, and I never met a person who, you know, chose that like nine out of 10 people experienced, you know, rape or molestation or neglect or something. I mean, so like you're saying, everybody has a story and everybody needs that compassion and love. I totally agree. Yeah. And forgiveness, you know, like, yeah, people do. Yeah, that's things. big. Yeah. Stupid stuff. It's just like, okay. I always tell people, if you haven't done anything too stupid to ruin your life by 25, you're going to be all right. You know, it's yeah. like you look at these because the kids are so worried about things. I'm like, look, you know, you know, as long as you don't do something so dumb, like, you know, drink and drive and accidentally kill somebody, you know, you're going to, yeah. you know, but, you know, you got to think about these things. Like everybody's gotten drunk every once in a while and done something really dumb. Well, you know, you do it once, it's, you know, unfortunate. You do it twice, unfortunate, three times, unfortunate. But if you keep doing it, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're, you know, we've all been there. Um, growing up is hard. You know, I was telling my son, you know, that age between 19 and 21 is like one of the hardest ages. Yeah. And, and um, that was the age when I was, you know, leaving South Carolina and going to Hawaii. So those were definitely mm -hmm. the hardest years of my life. Yeah. Especially when everybody says you can't do it. Yeah. You're like, okay, I got nobody with me. So 
you know, give give people all the help they can they you can because they need it. For sure, for sure. So, you know, we've talked a lot about you know where you came from and what you were doing, and but you made it. You're here. You made it. We're talking. So, what's next, Drew? Like, what's on your docket that you haven't accomplished yet that you've got your sights set on? I know you've shifted a lot. Of, well, not shifted. You still do surf art, but you've expanded, if you will, into sacred geometry and some other subjects. So I'm curious, like, what does the future look like? What else are you interested in pursuing? Well, I can't see it changing a whole lot. I just want it to get more sophisticated. Um, you know, my wife, Maria, and I, you know, love to travel. Um, we still love doing art. We love meeting people. And, you know, my whole art career is a real reflection of my clients. Mm. So as my clients have gotten more sophisticated, my art gets more sophisticated. Um, personally, I'm very interested in uh, meteorology, climatology, mm. uh, solar physics, astrophysics, astronomy, uh, geology and ancient cultures and anthropology. Yeah. I mean, you know, I often think that maybe I should have been a scientist because I'm actually probably more knowledgeable in science than I am in art. Wow. <laughs> but, uh, but so, you know, I, I just look at, like, I'm on the downward slide now. Like, I have nothing to prove to people, and uh, we've been successful. And my kids are grown, so I... Uh, I, I still want to surf a lot of places. I got a, a bucket list. Um, as long as they don't do a vaccine passport, I, I might be able to pull that off. Yeah. Um, even if they do, I'll figure out a way to do it. <laughs> 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 myself somewhere. Um, but, uh, you know, some of the places I want to go are like Skeleton Bay and, and Namibia. And I want to oh, go wow. to Ireland and surf uh, Mugglemore. Mm. Uh yeah, so there's there's lots of places I still want to go and surf. Yeah. And, um, and then other places I want to go and adventure, like Angkor Wat. I haven't been there yet. And oh, I've been wow. to a lot of ancient sites. That's one I want to go to. And um, no, some places in India I want to go. But uh, as far as the art goes, you know, the art is a reflection of my experiences um, mm. and the people that I'm meeting and working with. And so I'm constantly surrounding myself with interesting people. And, and so I want the art to reflect some of the things that I'm studying. So the art's definitely going to get more sophisticated and try to explain some of these more difficult concepts that I understand so that other people can contemplate and enjoy them. Um, mm. And that could be uh, on a social level or on a scientific level. And um, I look forward to, you know, maybe spending more time on paintings and like every artist has a masterpiece in them, um, mm. but they usually don't stick with it long enough to create it. And, you know, I look at like everything I've done to this point has uh, preparing me for, you know, creating some real art. Um, you know, when, I look at some of the master's paintings, like uh, I went to the uh, Dolly's Museum in uh, St. Pete, Florida, and just the immensity of some of these paintings and the, I mean, people don't realize how big some of them are. 
And wow. you, can, you can really see they have some of his early work in there and then his later work. And artists are very lucky because, you know, they get better over time. So the opposite mm. in an athlete, yeah. you know, athletes usually best. And sure. so, you know, I'm 50 years old and I have a feeling that in the next 20 years, I'm going to create something that, you know, probably a whole body of work that's just in a whole nother level. Wow. And um, I look forward to creating it. I look forward to sharing it with people. Um, and, you know, discovering some things, I think we're on the verge of discovering some, uh, very interesting things about science. You know, mm-hmm. we've got a lot of things wrong and it's starting to be, um, exposed and they're starting to shift sure. gears out of these incorrect ways of thinking. And, um, absolutely. And it, it's amazing. So like, you know, with COVID and stuff, people, you know, are like, oh my God, the world's coming to an end. I see the exact opposite. Mm, yeah. I see we're getting ready to hit this different space where, you know, if you think technology has, you know, taken off now, it's getting ready to take off way more. The, yeah. underst- the understandings about, uh, you know, our physical world and our consciousness and our spirituality, mm-hmm. um, these ways of thinking that, uh, quite frankly, have been kept from us. Yeah. That, that basically you have everything you need. You always yeah. have. Yeah. And, that, and there's nothing to be afraid of. And there never was. No. And so I think this is this last bit of frustration that's happening right now is getting ready to hit a whole nother gear of um, people feeling good about themselves and being enlightened and just stop, you know, believing the lies, lies. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And, you know, I, I feel that with all the division that's been pushed in the last couple of years, um, personally, I think we've moved so far beyond that so long ago that it seems very contrived that people are trying to cause this. Um, I love all people everywhere. You know, I've traveled to like 30 different countries. I've worked yep. in 17 and people are beautiful everywhere. They're amazing. They love their sure. children. They, uh, we all want the same things. Um, so I'm not really sure why so much uh, division is being uh, created. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everybody needs to check themselves and like, okay, you know, not that it's not real, that there, there definitely is, you know, there's always bad people everywhere, but on the whole, People are good. Yeah. And, and if we treat each other with respect and uh, give everybody the uh, value, I mean, that's all anybody wants to be is be included and valued. Yeah. And I think we're almost there that, that this last little hiccup of the, all this craziness that's been going on is exposing the fact that, look, we all need to stick together, need to help each other. And it's the difference between competition, which our world, that's what our world is now, and cooperation. Yeah. yeah. 
And uh, yeah, and I mean, it's just it's just so simple. It's almost like overnight, everybody could just decide to be different. Yeah. And stop listening to the like the voices in the media that are trying to turn you against each other. Um, and, you know, just be there for your friends and neighbors. I mean, I, I saw it here in my own town. It was beautiful. And, um, you know, I've seen it in other places. And so I really do see this big, bright light coming. And, uh, and I hope everybody else can find it, um, and see it. And, and, but everybody has to, has to, you know, you can talk about it all you want, but somebody has to feel it and Mm -hmm. see it and believe it. You know, it's COVID has erupted. It's just erupted all that corruption. Um, and brought it up like all these issues of you know women's rights black rights now in Canada they're uncovering mass grave sites of indigenous children um, yeah. killed I in residential that. schools I mean it's just disgusting um, for me I'll say I st- that's what I went to school for was uh, traditional aboriginal healing methods so I studied I lived on a reserve I studied under you know, medicine people and everything. So I knew about all these residential schools and, and gunpoint treaties and a lot of this stuff, not necessarily to the degree that's coming out now, but whenever I would talk about that with other people, the attitude would be something like, oh, those people all have it made. They don't pay taxes. They get to live on a little section of land. It's like, yeah, but do you know the social problems that have come along with that? And now with this uncovering of these grave sites, I see people waking up and it's like, where have you been this whole time? Like, this is not new. This has been existing like under, you know, so I am, I'm with you. I'm really stoked to see like light bulbs going off. Not everybody's, but enough. And, you know, a lot of people, the old guard you've mentioned, they slam millennials but I'll tell you, I've never met a really racist millennial. I've, you know, I've never met a millennial, you know, so I don't know. I think that there's a lot of good coming up, like you're saying, um, yeah. as some of those old views go away, I hope. Yeah, I, I, and I think it has to. It has to go away. Yeah. And, you know, it, as individuals, you know, you just got to be the best person you can be. And be that beacon of positivity, light, accomplishment, all these types of things. And it will resonate with people and it will bring other people along. And, you know, I read about the, you know, it's been a few of those grave sites have been found. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, all that stuff that's been swept under the rug and all that anger and grief and, you know, I think one of the things that we got to remind ourselves is, was that it, what we didn't do that, that, you know, that was somebody from another era did that mm-hmm. to some other people and it was awful. And we need to learn that like, that is never, that should never happen again. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I just, you know, I think, and in certain ways, there's there's a lot of bad stuff that kind of happened, kind of like peeling the Band-Aid off. It's going to hurt for a little while, but then once it's yeah. done, it's going to be. Um, and I see it just because there's so much anger to be uh, 
expressed. You know, when somebody finds out that, you know, they've basically been a slave to a banker their whole life, they're just going to be, you know, furious. Yeah. And I get, I get that backlash from people due to the way I live my life. I don't, uh, we do things totally different than most people. Yeah. um, We've chose to live a life where we were a lot freer and um, you know, it was harder to do, but we did it. Yeah. And people are get really mad at us. Like when we go on these month long excursions and things are like, well, it's not fair that you do that. They like, people think that I'm like, you know, getting a free ride from something. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I, I planned on it and I earned twice as much money so that I could do this Yeah. and I organize my life so I could do this. It's actually easier to go out and get a job and just be paid by somebody to push yeah. paper around. Yep. It is easier. And so you, it's hard to do it. Like, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and a self-made person, um, it's like being unemployed every Monday morning. Yeah. And um, so there's this give and take. It's, it's like a false sense of security that they've created for you, but they, they've, you know, are controlling every aspect of your life from your, you know, your taxes to what time you go to work, to what time you're doing this, to interest rates, to, you know, hell, how you're even paying for stuff. Now you're not allowed to leave your house or you're not allowed to fly. You know, I got a friend of mine from Canada that can't go home because he's going to spend 20 days in quarantine or something. Um, I got other friends that are stuck in Australia, you know, like, I'm just like, Holy smokes. Um, so, you know, there is this level of control that's really being exposed right now. Yeah. And, um, I don't think people like it. They're like, holy crap. Yeah. I never thought about this um, in this way. Like what a what a, a luxury and a privilege it is to be able to travel. You know, they're going to take that away from us. Mm. And um, that's a scary thought because I love to travel. Yeah. And so I'm not sure what that looks like or how I would combat that. But like my thought is, is I will find a way around it. Mm. I've sidestepped the system my entire life. Wow. And so my mindset is already that, okay, I am not going to let them stop me from being a citizen of this planet. Yeah. And yeah. I will find a way around it and I'm just going to work past it. And that might mean that I'm not allowed to, you know, play in their sandbox, mm-hmm. you, know? you know, so which me, all that means is in their systems of like whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that could be banking or that could be, you know, your passport or whatnot. I mean, it, it might have some risks involved, but I mean, I'm just yeah. like, I'm like, I was born on this planet too. Why do these people get to tell me what to do? I'm a good person. I do good things. I take exactly. care of myself, you know? So, you know, there, there's a lot happening and I think uh, collectively we're going to make good things happen. And um, some people have some harsh uh, things they got to deal with that they're going to wake up to. But on the other side of that is freedom. <laughs> yes. I'm purposely not responding to this because I have way too much to say on the subject that I just want to let it go. Yeah. 
we're getting yeah. closer to the end. I got some questions I really want to ask you. I wonder if maybe we'll we'll keep it a little shorter, maybe so we can get through. Not that I don't love you, the the long answers. Yeah, but so you, have, you have spoken uh, many times. I've heard you say that you know if I knew better when I was younger, I would have loved to have made movies, and yeah. I can relate to that too. And and I set out first, I went to, I went to university for communication studies because I wanted to be TV, movies, art, all that stuff. Went to university, totally flunked out. Went from an AB student in high school to flunked out of university because the whole thing was just overwhelming in the learning style. Like I was underprepared. And I wish that my guidance counselor had told me about college, like just go to college and learn how to use the camera and all that stuff. But I'm curious from, anyway, that's a side note. For you, you said, I would have loved to have made movies, but I've never heard you say, what kind of movies? What kind of movies do you like or what could, would you have seen yourself producing? Well, yeah, so um, out of high school, I, you know, like I said, I was coming out to California to surf and surfing contest. And I was lucky enough to be in Hollywood uh, staying with a cousin of mine and her mm. uh, boyfriend uh, worked for Amblin Entertainment, which was Steven, oh, okay. St Steven Spielberg's company. Yeah. Uh, and at the time they were built making Jurassic Park. Mm. Um, my cousin also worked in the movie business. And, um, and so initially I was wanting to maybe be an animator because, you know, my mm. style was very cartoonish and, he had the power to get me into all the animation studios. And in one day I went to every animation studio in Los Angeles. Wow. He had, he had me booked and I went to where classy Cuspo where they made the Simpsons. And I went to Spumco where they made Ren and Stimpy. And I went to Warner brothers where they were making Batman cartoons. And yeah, the list went on and on. And basically they were in such a need of animators that every one of them would have hired me to do something yeah. on the spot. And it was an eye opener for me because I think I was like 17 or something. Oh, and, okay. um, and I wasn't ready to move to California and start working. <laughs> um, but it got my wheels turning for a possibility in um, of a career as an artist. Gotcha. And and then when, but, you know, then you go back home to South Carolina and people are looking at you, you know, cross-eyed when you tell them you want to, you know, go work in Hollywood. Yeah. And so I started researching schools, art schools. And so I applied to a bunch of art schools. I got into some and they were very expensive. Uh, school like RISD in Rhode Island and uh, uh, Chicago Institute of Art, the, um, uh, the big one was Cal Arts, which is in Valencia, mm. which is kind of the school where a lot of the film people go. And at the time, there was a program there called Experimental Animation, which is today computer animation. Um, and so, you know, just fascinated me uh, when I was there with my uh, cousin's boyfriend. His name was Stuart. And he was showing me the storyboards. You know, I could see myself doing storyboards. I still have those storyboards from Jurassic Park. Wow. And how amazing that was to have, you know, look at this. And I was like, oh, wow, this is what people like me do. Mm. 
And, you know, you just take it for granted as a creative person that you see the world the way you do, but, you know, not everybody's seeing it that way. And so it, it is a real gift. And so, you know, I looked at it as like, wow, I'm a great storyteller. You know, I can visualize ideas and thoughts and and then articulate them so other people can understand them. I mean, that's essentially what an artist is. And so I just thought like, wow, this would be a perfect job for me. And Stuart ended up getting me uh, a interview at CalArts and I got in, they had me draw right there in front of them. And they said, yeah, if you want to go to school here, we'll, you know, we'll take you. And um, the only problem was it cost about $65,000 a year in tuition. And that was probably 1989. Wow. And not to mention room and board. And I mean, like those numbers just didn't even compute to me. I just was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh Anyway, but like I just fantasized what I would have been doing, which would have been probably like a lot of sci-fi stuff, a lot of just super creative stuff that the computer animation probably would allow you to do. Yeah. And there again, it's thinking. So, you know, being an artist is thinking differently. So I would have just applied that thinking differently to the technology so that, um, you know, movies could be made. And that's all movies are, is somebody articulating an idea and putting it into a real world experience where people can have it. Yeah. Because most people's imagination and visual capabilities just don't work as well as artists do. So I think sci-fi, I really like any good movie is, you know, well-written movie and subtle details about movie like a lot of people miss all the details in movies yeah i mean and i notice everything i'm like hyper present Mm. i'm like the exact opposite like if if somebody could walk around in my mind and life they would go absolutely insane because i notice (laughs) everything i hear everything um and it's it's maddening honestly Uh, so this is a good question for you then are you a Point Break fan? The first one, Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze. Uh, I think it's I think it's a cool movie because uh, I mean, let's face it, it's a little hokey and, and stuff like that. But the concept is pretty interesting. You know, when you think of surfers and uh, especially like we were talking about those Long Beach guys. I mean, if you were a group of guys that you know were used to the adrenaline of surfing big waves or doing you know you know, really scary stuff, you know, robbing a bank would be right up there with it. And (laughs) um, so, you know, that adrenaline is addicting. That's why we're still chasing tubes at 50 years old. And and so so, as a, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, but absolutely. It was a well done movie. Um, The whole idea of the mask was pretty cool. The ex-president jumping out of the airplanes and, you know, Johnny Utah was kind of a goofy guy. And, um, but yeah, it was cool. So two questions left for you. And the one is, so imagine you're Drew Brophy, the filmmaker. You've been approached point break two. <laughs> did Patrick Swayze make his way out of that wave? Is he alive or did he get to- Did Is he toast? Oh, he would definitely make it. Okay. 
Thank and, God. Yeah. And, and the wave would be a lot bigger because today oh, we're on much, much bigger waves. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't count if you don't make it. I mean, <laughs> come on. And, I came and, up with this whole concept. I have it in my head. I want to write it into a comic, and I but I have to find the illustrator. And I don't know if you've been watching uh, the Karate Kid, the Cobra Kai show, but I take a lot of the tropes from that where Patrick Swayze like washes up on shore and falls in love with the Maori woman and then has a kid and, you know, spends the next like 20 years getting really zenned out. And meanwhile, Keanu, he kind of like went the other way, really pissed off and resentful at life. But something happens, and I don't know what it is yet, but something triggers that they have to team up and they have to put the mask back on. But this time they're dressed like Bill Clinton and Trump and Obama and George W. And, uh, and I also see it a lot as almost like a Rambo movie where Patrick Swayze has been studying in the jungle, you know, and he's just become like this ultimate fighter. But he's actually become really, he's morphed and evolved into quite a, a good guy. But at the end of it all, he still is that adrenaline junkie, like you said, saying screw the system, that he does flip back at the end. But I don't know if I should have shared that on the air, but. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's cool. I think I think if uh, if that character was to survive that and then end up on an island he would become like a sage. He would just be like yeah. this keeper that was against the system sage, you know? And, yeah. uh, and then Keanu Reeves would probably end up being the, you know, kind of tired of trying to put bad guys away and them getting out yeah. and getting away. And he's probably the, you know, sour one. And then they kind of meet up and again, and, it kind of flips the switch. Like all of a sudden he realizes like, you know, Patrick Swayze had it right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Okay. I'll consult you when I uh, put the, put the pen to paper on that one. That's one of my big projects. I'm thinking maybe yeah. in the winter when I have more time, but, and my last question for you, Drew is I just thought it was only fitting. You mentioned the name Greg earlier and yesterday we lost the legendary uh, Greg Knoll. And yeah. I'm curious if you knew him or what kind of impact maybe he had through your meetings or your surfing or positive, negative, anything. Just curious your whole take on, on his life. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I've met Greg Knoll quite a few times. Uh, and his son, Jed, a really nice guy. Really heart goes out to him losing his dad and, and whole family. But, um, yeah, Greg was one of those guys larger than life. Uh, definitely, you know, influenced me and just in the idea of, you know, a shaper and a surfer. Uh, I think that era of, of per people were, you know, lack of a better term, real men, you know, they mm. attack things and, you know, no offense to people today, but they're kind of soft and, you know, the guys are more worried about what they look like than they are about anything else. And I think I'm more kind of more like the other guys, like Greg Nolan, them of just, you know, just kind of bite down and do it. Yeah. And 
you know, and that picture of him at pipelines, kind of that, you know, he's looking at it like, okay, this wave's going to kick my butt, but I'm going to yeah. give it a go. Um, and I, I think he kind of represents that whole group of surfers and uh, men from that era. Um, they did big things and they, they worked hard. So like as a shaper and a surfboard maker, um, there's lots of stories about him around here in San Clemente. And, um, you know, I just think it's really cool, especially as surfing. They're kind of like the, the surfing's first generation, mm. you know, surfing's getting older now. And so we're starting to lose these guys and we've lost quite a few of them already. And, um, you know, we're, we're standing on their shoulders. They were craftsmen, um, maybe more of a blue collar type of, you know, hard edge craftsmen. And, you know, kind of like in Southern California, you got the hot rod guys and the, you know, the shapers and the surfers. And, you know, a lot of that stuff came out of uh, World War II technology of, you know, some of the aerospace stuff um, in the Navy. So a lot of the surfboard materials come out of that. A lot of those guys come out of that lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, surfers kind of adopted that, that craftsman skill, that inventive in, uh, type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, he was, he was larger than life. I mean, he was a f funny guy to talk to real loud and big dude. And, and, uh, yeah, it, it's just sad that, that, you know, this group of people are, are passing, but it, it's neat for surfing in one way that, you know, we're now seeing surfers surf a lot older. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know any other sport you can be doing into your seventies and eighties, but you know, I got a yeah. friend, Jim Gibby, that's 80 years old down here and he still surfs with us. Um, I hope I'm surfing when I'm 80, man. For I sure. hope that I'm telling surf stories about stuff, the places yeah. I'm in and, you know, we're going to, you know, see more surfers, uh, continue on later in life. Look at Kelly Slater is like, you know, 50 years old. I surfed with Kelly the yeah. other day wow. and, and, you know, he's like less than a year younger than me mm. and we were out surfing. And, uh, yeah, I actually said to him, I was like, dude, you must love surfing. Cause the waves were like big and out of control. And he had just surfed his pool the day before and it was perfect. Wow. And I just said, like, I can't believe you're out here. I'm out here because, you know, I just got off work and I just wanted to surf. But like, I mean, you were just surfing perfect wave yesterday and you're out here. And he said, yeah, man, I love it. He goes, I, I like it seems like he would be tired of it. He gets surfed. He's probably surfed more waves than anybody alive. Yeah. And he was paddling back out there as fast as he could to get another one. So, yeah. you know, it's a real testament to surfing in general that older that you can surf as an older person and still get that thrill and um, maybe golf's like that or something, but yeah, surfing's pretty amazing. So, you know, thanks to guys like Greg Knoll who really pushed the sport and um, really brought it to where it is today. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Drew, man. There's so much more like that I would have wanted to ask you, but we're going to put a pin in it there. Yeah. You know, I'm about to, uh, I have a van that I'm going to brand up. And for a while I was entertaining the fact of, you know, getting, uh, 
stickers made for it and everything. And, you know, I priced it out just like thousands and thousands of dollars that I don't have. And uh, one of the things I, I read somewhere that was a bit inspirational was you talked about making your own uh, business cards and people thought you were crazy for it. Yeah. And so this new idea has come in my head where I'm like, you know, I'm not the best artist, but I don't want to pay five grand. So I've got this beautiful, big 2009 uh, Ford E250 cargo van that I use for transporting my boards and everything. And I saw what you've done to your van and I'm like, you know what? I think I'm just going to, you know, order some of those eight inch Poskas from you guys and just give it a whirl. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah try, and try the spray paint. The spray paint's amazing. Okay. So, yeah. The paint, the spray paint. So you could do, you know, half and half or it doesn't matter. You know, it's just like, let it be what it's going to be. And it's, yeah. You know, it's cool. Yeah, right on. So yeah. I might have to, you know, reach out to you when I go to do that project for a bit of consulting in terms of like making sure the paint doesn't come off after and how to treat it and all that. That's another conversation. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm going to give that a shot. Man, so Drew, is there anything that you didn't get out there that you want to put out there before I let you go tonight or? You know, just uh just thanks for anybody who's listening and uh, hopefully I didn't offend anybody. Hopefully I gave people some food for thought and uh, yeah, just go back to that thing of uh, be compassionate and uh, for people and try to be the best person you can be. That's, that's what we all should be doing. And uh, life is good. It you is know, it's great. You got it. Enjoy every moment. So love it. Drew, mahalo for being here, man. I also want to say thank you and mahalo to CTRE Studios. So the, the fact is I'm in the studio today. This is my first show from a studio. I kind of feel like uh, Wayne's World, you know, like when he went from the basement to the studio. I live so rural now. I live in the middle of the bush up on Lake Huron. And the rural internet is terrible that I actually had to book this studio. Otherwise, I don't think the Zoom call would have went through. So thank you to CTRE for having me here. Drew, thank you for being here. And for anybody listening, www.drewbrophy.com. You're all over Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, you got this great book here. And for anybody who you know wants to give the Posca paint pens a try, this is what the uh, yeah it looks like there. So give that a spin. Yeah. Thanks for all the plugs. And uh, yeah, life is good. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Thanks for being on the show, Drew. Stay stoked. Right on. That's all for episode number 48 of Permastoked. I hope you enjoyed listening or watching that one. Again, a big mahalo goes out to Drew Brophy for coming on the show. Uh, Drew's been my favorite artist for a long time and a big inspiration, honestly, for myself in surf culture. Uh, the way he draws surfing, I just think really speaks to me and uh, the colors and it's just incredible. And I encourage anyone who's unfamiliar to, to get familiar real quick. 
Anyhow, you can connect with Drew online at www.drewbrophy.com, on Instagram at Drew Brophy, and on Facebook at Drew Brophy Art, and on Twitter at Drew Brophy. Thanks again, Drew. Peace. to give a big mahalo to Mark Malibu and the Wasagas for providing our intro music Hey Chihuahua off their 2019 album Crash Monster Beach and our outro music End of Summer off their 2017 album Return of the Wasagas. For more information visit www.wasagas.com. But of course mahalo to all you listeners out there. We are so grateful that you chose to join us for this episode and we look forward to providing you with even more awesome content in the future. More episodes are on their way, but in the meantime, make sure to go back and listen to our previous episodes. Don't miss an episode ever again by subscribing on the Alexa app, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Podbean, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please let us know how we're doing by leaving us a rating and review. And don't forget to share with your family and friends over social media or by spreading the word in the lineup. To learn more about Freshwater Surf Goods and to check out our products and services, visit www.freshwatersurfgoods.com. Sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date on new products, new episodes of Permastoked, events, our surf, sup, and yoga schedule, and other exciting news. And don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Freshwater Surf Goods. But if you're part of the surf or sup industry, or a surfaholic wanting to connect with your tribe and stay informed as to what's happening all across the Great Lakes and Canadian surf scene, then join our Facebook group, the All Canadian Surf and Sub Club. If you have an idea for collaboration, would like to recommend a future guest, would like to invite me to an event or book me to teach surf, sup, or yoga, you'd like to carry our products in your store, if you or your company are interested in being a sponsor of the show, discussing an ambassadorship or a bro deal, and for anything else, hit me up on social media or email me at derek at freshwatersurfgoods.com. That's derek at freshwatersurfgoods.com, D-E-R-I-K. I look forward to next time and getting to know you all better. In the meantime, I'm your host, Derek Hyatt. Mahalo, freshies, keep surfing, and stay stoked.